0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks very much for joining us. I just finished talking with Karin Berkowitz about her new book, Charles Bell and the Anatomy of Reform. This came out in 2015 with the University of Chicago Press. Now, this is a book that's a really beautiful example of a study that takes a figure, an individual figure, as a window into a much broader society, a social context, and the transformations therein. So Karin uses Charles Bell as a window into understanding 19th century London medicine and surgery and its transformations and its various kinds of reform and its modes of education, its classrooms, its um, visual materials, including 3D and 2D materials, its political contexts, its print materials. There's a lot happening here um, that helps us understand what it meant to practice and to teach medicine in 19th century London and the ways that that changed over the course of the life of one man and the reasons why the nature of those changes are actually really important and really significant to understand in order to understand a larger history, not just of medicine, not just of education, not just of medical education, but of what it, of what it is to understand um, and to uh, help others understand medical bodies in modern history. So it's a really beautifully wrought study, um, and it was really great fun talking with Karin about it. And it was also really informative. This is a book Um, that has a lot in it. Uh, So if you're not necessarily self-identifying as a historian of medicine, and if you're not necessarily someone who self-identifies as someone who's really interested in the history of uh, London, the history of the 19th century, there's still some really interesting stuff in here that helps think through histories of intellectual property, um, issues of what has counted and what counts now as a publication, and lots of other aspects of what it is um, to think about the life of somebody who is writing, somebody who is writing about science and medicine, um, and lots and lots of other things. So it's a really, really interesting book, and I highly recommend it. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks for your support of the podcast, as always, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Karin Berkowitz about her new book, Charles Bell and the Anatomy of Reform. Welcome to new books in science, technology, and society, Karin. Thanks for writing an awesome book and thanks for making time to talk with me about it today. I'm really looking forward.
1: Thank you, Carla. I really appreciate the opportunity and uh Great fun to be able to chat with you.
0: So let's start um, with the question that is the traditional starting point for the channel. How did you come to the field? What brought you to work in the history of science and medicine?
1: I have to say it was something of an accident, although an early accident that makes my future path look sort of more predestined than it actually was. Um, I didn't, like most people, know that the history of science existed as a field when I was, say... In high school, but I I discovered it um, when I was 16. I went to do a summer program at Johns Hopkins and I had signed up for two classes, uh, one in the history of music and the other in the history of art. And I got to the campus and found that only three people had enrolled in the history of music and they were canceling the class. So I was asked on the spot to pick something new. And so I just picked up the course guide and I was already sort of in the H's because of my my history of music. And I saw this course on history of medicine. So I said, okay, I'll take that. Um, and it turned out that I loved it. And what is perhaps stranger, um, I got really interested in William Bynum's science and the practice of medicine in the 19th century, which is a sort of odd fascination for a 16 year old. (laughs) (laughs) But I ended up going home, you know, talking about it with friends and family and then sort of setting it aside. And then I ended up as an undergraduate at Hopkins, uh, where I I majored in English and minored in history of science. Um, and I always loved that sort of intersection of humanities and sciences. So that was sort of how I found it in the first place.
0: Great. So you've already talked a little bit about Um, about how you came to the 19th century, right? And relatively early, um, relative to how these things usually work. Um, But the book focuses on a particular figure, Charles Bell, as kind of an entree into the world of 19th century London medicine and surgery. So what brought you to this particular topic? Why 19th century London? And why Charles Bell as a way into that
1: world? I... I found Bell uh, when I was reading around for my general exams as a graduate student. I was at Cornell, and I was um, I was reading as a part of an independent study Jerry Geeson's book on Michael Foster, and he alluded to a priority dispute between uh, Francois Magendie and Charles Bell, and I thought, okay. And he he sort of mentioned in the footnote uh, that not much had been written about this, and I thought, okay. That sounds good, something that people haven't written about that was kind of a major priority dispute during the, the time. I'll look at that more. And I did, uh, thinking that I would do a fairly even-handed treatment of British and French uh, anatomy and physiology during the period, in particular using the priority dispute to open up normal science in the way that STS often does. Uh, but as I I read more and more, I felt more and more drawn to the British side of the story, in part because that story really hadn't been told elsewhere, where there are people who have done a really admirable job of looking at 19th century French anatomy, physiology, biology. Um, The British side, you know, pre-Victorian era, 19th century Britain kind of gets lost a little bit. Uh, So I felt like that was a story that needed telling. And also, I have to say that although some people might regard this as a cardinal sin among historians, I I really liked the character of Bell. There's a lot of material out there, a lot of letters, and I felt like I kind of got to know him. And as I did, I, I just got more and more interested. So I ended up following that path in a way that I hadn't anticipated and sort of re-centered the dissertation on um, British medicine and science and in particular on pedagogy as an arena that... It gets ignored within the history of science all too often, I think, in favor of uh, what's more recognizably the arena of research.
0: And this is the Charles Bell of Bell's palsy, right? Um, It is. You may not otherwise be familiar with him. And we'll hear uh, much more. I think, or at least a little bit more um, in the conversation to come about Bell's palsy and the facial nerves and then what all of this has to do with Bell's career and um, some of the things that you've already mentioned, actually, in the way they really nicely kind of weave together. So there was, um, I'm hearing or I'm, I'm gathering from our conversation before we started this, there was quite a transformation, it sounds from the project um, in its instantiation as a dissertation project to its instantiation as a book project. So can you talk about that transformation um, for us? And for you, what were some of the most notable and important aspects of the transition?
1: Sure. Um, So I, I wrote the dissertation attempting to disguise the fact that it was a piece of work about Bell, in part because I think biography has been frowned upon by academic historians as a sort of illegitimate approach to exploring history. Certainly within an STS context, it's not the way that most people uh, formulate their research. And so I tried very hard to to write my dissertation as if it was about a movement called the conservative reform movement, um, which is a term that, that I coined uh, and that I, I found myself having to fight for among committee members because it, it sounds like it doesn't quite work together, but we can talk more about that. But um but my idea was uh, in the dissertation that there was this this movement of people who were not radicals uh but who did want reform and they wanted reform of a particular style. Well, I finished the dissertation. I walked away from it for about six months, and then I came back to it and started to think about how to make it into a book. And I thought, you know, I've worked so hard to try to create the sense of a group of conservative reformers. um, And I'm not sure that I actually believe that a group really existed. I thought about what it would take to prove that the group was there for a book and i thought you know this is not actually it's not a social group in the way that the radicals were the radicals were smaller in number they had a vocal leader and they became a recognizable social unit in london during this period these conservative reformers were very very loosely organized socially um they had different platforms different agendas And as I came to grips with that and started to think about what that would mean for the book project, I thought, you know, I don't need to hide the fact that this is really centered around one person. And in fact, there's a virtue in it. Uh, There's a historiographical virtue in it. Because by using a single individual, uh, I can sort of track how a person moved through a landscape. The landscape, we already know, the landscape includes people like radicals and and people like conservatives who historians like Adrian Desmond have profiled before, but individuals very rarely fit those groupings. And by using biography, I can kind of take that apart and show that although these groups can be read into a a sort of big picture of the era, individual people cannot be slotted into boxes within those groups. Um, so I took what felt like a drawback in the dissertation and turned it into the focal point, actually, of the book. Um, figuring that, you know, I've sort of I've done the dissertation work of of presenting this as something that that's not a biography, and in fact, by writing it as something that's about a single individual, uh, I have the opportunity maybe to get uh, some people interested who might find a book about conservative reformers less approachable. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was sort of the aha moment that led to the transformation from the dissertation to the book.
0: I love that. Thank you for sharing that experience with us. Um, So the book um, in the introduction you tell us, and this is in the words of the book, that the book uses the life of Charles Bell, um, who we've talked about a little bit already as a sampling device to uncover a Strain of Conservative Reform in Early 19th Century British Medical Education. So since you've already brought up the importance of this notion of conservative reform, and this is a contribution that the book is making, why don't we start by talking a little bit about that? Um, What do listeners need to know about this notion of conservative reform that you're introducing here in order to really appreciate the work that 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 concept does in the context
1: of the book? I think that... Um, it's so it's an interesting uh it's an interesting thing because if you look back historically uh you very rarely see well no, I shouldn't say that but I, change is is not always accomplished by people who are coming out and declaring themselves avowed radicals uh mm-hmm. what we see in bell and what I think actually we see elsewhere in the history of science um in fact, I've talked to other people who have recognized some of this in their own central characters, is that you'll have somebody saying that what they're really trying to do is to bring out, to reform science, to bring out the best of what they regard as traditional. So this idea of conservative reform, for Bell at least, is about, um, it's about reforming a medical system in London, that was that was broken. Most people recognized that it was broken. In fact, there were very few sort of true conservatives who wanted to maintain a, a fairly nepotistic system that wasn't serving actual practitioners very well. Uh, so, so you have Bell saying, you know, we need to reform this, but the style of reform that that he sought, and this was. It was not just spell. Um, was a style of reform that he regarded as traditionally British. Uh, so, part of this is a rhetorical move. Part of it is making reform safe by saying we're we're actually going to reform this into something that that feels familiar, that feels appropriate and local, um, and you know. By the way, everybody, this is not the French Revolution. Those people in France do things completely differently and people lose their heads over there. But here we've got this very logical, traditional conservative reform taking the best of British tradition and using it to improve what's already on the ground um, and that becomes a powerful form of rhetoric. It becomes a powerful anti-radical form of rhetoric. Uh, it picks up on other kinds of political reform rhetoric circulating in, in Britain in the 1820s and 30s. Um, but it, in its own way, it creates a tradition, I would argue, that uh, mm-hmm. that maybe you can't recognize it as existing autonomously. So um, the the quote unquote tradition, uh, is, is in fact a construction of something new and something that, that's being constructed as quintessentially British. To Bell, that means things like, uh, an emphasis on practice. Um, it means things like, uh, looking to competition, uh, as a way of, uh, of providing the best among local private schools, um, and uh, and there's really an emphasis on sort of tying hospital practice to classroom training um, in ways that, you know, they would have argued were anti-French. So they would have said that uh, the French asked questions about physiology that had very little to do with medical practice. And in fact, you know, French practitioners were eager for their patients to die so that they could be autopsied. And, you know, this is all... Mm. Of course, um, very nationalistic kind of rhetoric, but right. it, <laughs> but that was the way of of framing conservative reform that you saw that one saw sort of circulating among Bell and his, and some of his contemporaries.
0: Great. Now this conservative reform was in the realm of early 19th century medical education. And you also make the argument here in the introduction, this is going to lead us into the first chapter, that 19th century medical science in Britain, and this is uh, in the words of the book, was fundamentally about teaching. Um, So let's talk about teaching, because that's very much the focus of Chapter 1. Chapter 1 looks at Bell's early years in London, and it does this in part by drawing on a really fascinating archival um, kind of set I don't know if they are actually archival materials, but I'm going to call them archival because i'm I think of them as a fascinating archive. Um, but so a fascinating archive of letters that, that were exchanged between him and his brother George. and for listeners um, who haven't yet uh, read the book, there's a lot of really fascinating background um, on Bell and his family and his relationship with his brother and the ways that those early family relationships um, probably inform what happened later. So you can find that in the introduction and you can find that in this part of the book. Now, the chapter considers Bell's efforts to develop his anatomical research and to gain notoriety as a natural philosopher at the same time. And it talks about a few ways that he did this. One of the ways he did this um, was uh, through a series of efforts to cultivate patronage, especially using networks of other Scottish men in London and also his effort to build a private school. So it's the latter that I kind of want to ask you about. Now, he was centrally concerned with establish- establishing himself as a teacher and creating an audience of students. Um, these were Many of them were paying students, and some of them were students who lived in his house. Um, and, and the latter created um, kind of no small amount of tension in some uh, yeah. context of his life. Um, yes. So, so Karin, can you talk about, um, for you, what's most fascinating in this part of the book about understanding Bell as a teacher, his commitments as a teacher, and the practices that he undertook um, in order to
1: fulfill those commitments? Yeah, so it, it's one of the things that I think is uh, is most interesting about this this period and place and that gets least highlighted, actually, among historians who look to things like uh, books and maybe don't see that... Um, that books were written often to play a particular role in relation to the classroom. So um for Bell, the classroom was very clearly the center of his world. Uh, the books that he wrote uh, correlate very nicely with the courses that he taught and the kinds of students that he taught. Uh, we can see some of his written work as a form of advertising almost to recruit students to his classroom. Uh, London private schools there were many of them uh, they were very very competitive they offered uh, the most sort of practical hands-on training available in Britain at the time. Edinburgh was a center of of medical education in Great Britain, but they didn't have the same Number of private schools that offered access sometimes to ward walking in the hospitals sometimes to anatomizing uh, bodies to surgical training and so even uh, you know strong medical cities like Edinburgh, the students would leave in the summertime often and come down or go and spend a year in London to do some of their practical training and and that really uh, created a very rich environment for medical men who also needed to build a career and earn an income someone like bell who didn't particularly love uh, private practice ended up building their career through the classroom their their form of income through the classroom but also in bell's case uh, it became the place of research and it became the place of research because he had uh, he had house pupils, as you alluded to, who lived with him and who would help him to conduct his research, in particular, uh, nephews of his, uh, John Shaw and then later Alexander Shaw, who, who helped him with his work. Um, but also, again, a, as a sort of way of gaining a competitive edge in a, in a market that was overfilled, I... Uh, you would bring your newest research to the classroom. You would have to articulate it through the classroom um, and and sort of use the classroom as a space for testing, exploring, um, and circulating knowledge. Because if you made the classroom the space in which that happened, then students who paid for your classes were getting, you know, an in on special new knowledge. Uh, so that became... Really, the focus of Bell's work, and he taught he taught anatomy uh, he also taught surgery and he and he taught artists and so um these constituencies, anatomists, surgeons, and artists became his his audience for his written work as well. so I think we can really see that classroom as being central to what he was doing, to the research endeavors, and also to the publication of his work. It all sort of happens through the classroom venue.
0: And the chapter really nicely takes us into those published works as well. Um, there was a work for artists, essays on the anatomy of expression in painting. Um, so that's it's a really fascinating part, I think, of the work that he was doing. There was also a, a work called A System of Operative Surgery for the Surgeons. And among other things, there were really interesting images of wounded soldiers. Um, so listeners who are particularly interested in that aspect of the history of surgery and, and the education thereof in this period, military and soldiers, um, will find some really interesting stuff in this chapter. And there's also a book for anatomists called Idea of a New Anatomy of the Brain. Now, this brings us into another um, really important theme of the book. And that is, at least um, to my, um, as a result of my reading, right, this seems to be really important. And this is Bell's interest in systems. Now, in this book, Idea of a New Anatomy of the Brain, he comes up with um, this way of understanding and, and um, emphasizing the importance of a system of nerves. So can you talk um, for, briefly, Karin, about his interest in nerves in terms of a system? And what might this help us understand more broadly about the
1: importance of systems for Charles Bell? Sure. So uh, this is something that that I think I spent a lot of time trying to understand in understanding bell because uh he refers often to system he talks about uh trying to create a system where previously there was there was none um he talks about this sort of chaos of the nervous system and uh the ways in which people understood it before he came to it and he very deliberately sought to bring order to that uh he actually started looking at the nerves with the understanding that he was going to make a discovery somehow there, that that was going to be his natural philosophical contribution and his way in to a philosophical gentlemanly elite, as well as, uh, you know, helping to further medical and anatomical knowledge. So um, he he saw the brain and the nerves as, as incredibly important. He saw them as uh, as sort of jumbled in the way that they were understood by previous medical men, and he brought with him both this focus on the brain and this idea of system from Edinburgh Natural Philosophy, from people like Adam Smith, uh, from people like Colin. He and and so then you sort of ask yourself, well, what does system mean if he's taking this language from? Other things that are as disparate as the works of, of Colin and Adam Smith, What's the common denominator there? Uh, for Bell, the idea of systems seems to have meant something that was elegant and ordered uh, without redundancy, uh, something that um, that functioned in a way that accorded with natural theology uh that showed kind of designfulness um and so when he set about bringing order to the nerves um he was setting about making a system out of them and that as as i say it it was really important to him that it resonated across these different domains across medicine across natural theology and across natural philosophy. And of course, within the realm of anatomy, he had a model to look to in the circulation of the blood, uh, which was also then regarded as a system. So you could look at Harvey's circulation of the blood. You, he could say, I'm going to do something that's going to be as big as what Harvey did. It's going to be the most important thing since what Harvey did. And it's going to bring system and order and something that belongs properly to natural philosophy, as well as something that belongs to anatomy.
0: So we've already talked a little bit about um, Bell's interest in two different systems, right? The system of the nerves, um, as you've just mentioned, and also a kind of system of education. And you talk about that as well in this chapter. But chapter two actually takes us into Bell's classroom a little bit further to show us the importance of another kind of system for him. And this is something that you call a system of display. Now you talk here about the importance of wax models and jarred organs and notebooks with drawings and other ways that display, and not just as a bunch of individual objects, but as a collection that work together, was really
1: central for what he was doing in his classroom.
0: So can you talk a
1: little bit about that? Sure. Um, so the system of display that, uh, that I argue that Bell and, and also his contemporaries used um, was in fact along the same lines of system that I was just talking about. It was economical, it was efficient, it involved uh, something that was comprehensive and that had appropriate parts for appropriate purposes. So i uh, One of the most important things I would say about the system of display is that historians make a mistake when they look to one form of visualization in isolation. Uh, And we see this, I think, uh, fairly often in the history of science. People take, for example, engravings from books and they talk about uh, the ways in which those engravings formed a, a, um, a sort of indexed to the way in which the world was visualized or they help us to understand modes of visualization. Uh, But by doing that, we're taking books out of a context in which they functioned, uh, certainly within the world of anatomy, but I think also in things like natural history and botany. Um, Those books sat alongside other forms of visualization. And as I say, because they constituted a system they worked in interrelated ways. Each one had its function, each one was appropriate to its function. So in in the case of Bell and Bell's work, um, you see elaborate, beautiful engravings. but they sat mostly in a in a sort of museum context where you also have jarred specimens that allow you to see, uh, sometimes pathology, sometimes anatomy, very close up. Uh, you get the three-dimensional about it. And those sat alongside wax models where you could control for things sometimes like color, sometimes like texture, um, and all of these different things worked together to help train uh, physicians or surgeons to see the body. And you can't pull out one of those and examine it in isolation because they were so much dependent on being situated alongside other aspects of that system. Um, and some of those things like rough sketches helped students to see the whole and the interrelationship of parts. Um, the jarred specimens, which we sometimes look at and think, that's a funny looking object and it you know it gives you a chance maybe you know to peer at something through glass well those were actually probably even handled so uh in addition to giving you you know a sort of through glass appearance many of them would have been removed from their jars passed a long line in a classroom as uh, as William Hunter wrote about uh so you know I think that uh It's it's actually a a fairly complex way of visualizing the body, and uh, and one that we need to take all of the parts uh, into account in order to understand.
0: And your description of the glass jar and the the ways that those glass jars were probably used um, is also a great example of another really important point that emerges out of this chapter. And that is um, the connection between seeing and handling, right? The connection between the training of the eye and the hand um, that happened in concert. You make a point here. In the chapter that in the medical classroom, um, and again, these are the words of the book. First, the eye was trained to see; then, the hand was trained to know. So, Bell is advocating, and, and um, it's a really important part of his pedagogy that the hand and the um, eye were trained together.
1: That's right, in in great part because the groups that he's educating, and in fact, you know, his own background um, involve art or surgery, both of which are crafts of the hand. And so uh, part of what Bell's arguing for is a kind of correlation between the knowledge of the eye and the knowledge of the hand. And he argues that uh, that anatomists need to learn to draw or to do some sort of constructive art, much as artists need to learn to dissect, because without those two pieces functioning together, the, the sort of receptive sense of sight and the active sense of, of touch and of the hand, uh, you can't form true knowledge, he argues. Uh, and in, in making that argument, he's also elevating what used to be a fairly, uh, before his time, a fairly lowly kind of pursuit, which is, uh, handwork, craftwork. Um, so surgery, it, sort of existed in a a rank much lower than, than that of medicine. Um, But he, he's trying to elevate the kinds of knowledge that surgeons have by saying, no, no, knowledge of the eye alone will not suffice. You have to be able to demonstrate with your hands, a kind of constructive knowledge of the world, uh, as a way of reinforcing and, and perhaps further articulating the knowledge of the eye, so he wants to bring these two things together in a way that I think you know serves his own ends um but that's also uh, fairly novel and and fairly persuasive, particularly given that uh that knowledge in anatomy was almost always captured through. Through illustrations and drawings, it's one of the more interesting parts of looking at at Bell's career is that he did his own drawings, unlike many other anatomists. So uh, he has a a particular stake in trying to argue for uh, the significance, not just of doing the dissection, not just of theorizing the ways in which parts of the body go together, but also in representing those uh, four An audience that will be looking at pictures primarily.
0: That's right. And the chapter also um, gives a really interesting reading of something. We won't have a chance to really talk about, but I, I'll just mark it for our listeners because it is importantly related to what we've been talking about. Um, that is Bell's Bridgewater Treatise on the Hand, um, and you talk about this um, insofar as um, this text, as, you, as the chapter argues, isn't just an example of um, natural theology. This is something that should be understood as a, as, as you call it, a mature articulation of a pedagogical. Philosophy. So um, there's lots more about hands and his ideas of and writings about hands in the chapter for listeners who are particularly interested in that. But as we move forward, we move into another kind of genre. This is a chapter in chapter three that focuses on the emergence of politicized weekly medical journals. Now, in this period of the book, Bell, um, we see him being appointed to a professorship, professorship of anatomy and surgery of the Royal College of Surgeons in 1813. And we also see him elected to the post of hospital surgeon at Middlesex Hospital. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Now, as part of what he was doing, he's giving lectures, and there's a new genre of what are called medical weeklies that are helping to kind of um, publicize teaching, um, not unproblematically here, as we'll find out, as a result of publishing um, lecture notes like those that are recorded in um, Bell's lectures. So in order to kind of take us into what you think is most interesting and important about what's going on here with the medical weeklies, can you talk about this genre for you? What's most interesting about this group of publications and what's most important for us to understand about them in this context?
1: So uh, when I started this project, the first thing that I did and I, it's something that I'm not sure people will continue to do as as these things are digitized um, but i I sat down with thirty years' worth of the London Medical Gazette and literally just flipped page to page to page to page and it's thousands and thousands of pages um, and most of the pages i didn't I didn't really read, I was sort of combing them for uh, the themes that I had been looking for. But one of the things I was really struck by was that the bulk of these thousands of pages is reproduction of lecture notes. And I thought, oh, what a strange and interesting thing. Um, so I started to look more at that. And, and again, with this idea that the classroom is is the central aspect of of all of London medical science at the time, uh, the more I looked into it, the more fascinating I found it. Uh, so I've ended up actually exploring this a little bit further, even beyond the book, because, uh, in fact, it turns out that uh, notions of uh, of you know uh, priority of uh, of possession and, and ownership. Um, Emerge during this period that actually still hold today, which is, I think, fascinating. So intellectual property in England uh, to do with lecturing actually traces back to this period. Part of the reason that that's the case is that uh, the Lancet comes along in the 1820s and it begins its its life by filling its pages with the lecture notes of lecturers who had not agreed to have their lectures published. <laughs> so, so it starts out with a student sitting in on John Abernethy's classes uh, who writes up notes and they get published in The Lancet. And Abernethy, who's clearly going to do what everybody else was doing at the time, who uses the the fact that nobody has access to his lectures unless they pay to sit in the room to earn his living. But also um a lot of these guys were sort of saving up their material. And then the, at the end of a career, when they were done teaching, they might publish it in a large and impressive volume. He's finding that, that he's kind of getting scooped and that uh his, his classes are being made available to the masses who haven't paid the student fees. Uh, when the Lancet starts to publish them, so he sues he sues the in fact the student who took the notes um, and what we get from that actually is a whole series of court cases that that follow from it, in which it becomes clear that nobody can quite decide how to solve this problem because on the one hand uh, how can you compare the lecture notes of a student? to a verbal lecture that's not recorded in order to say that they're an identical copy and therefore that they infringe on intellectual property. But on the other hand, how can you say that, you know, somebody who's who's giving a lecture doesn't own the contents of the lecture that he's giving? Um, So it gets sorted out in all kinds of complicated and slightly funny ways with lawyers insulting each other. Uh, and and ultimately a couple of reversals of position and i think you know the end judgment ends up being sort of that uh, that it depends on the space in which a lecture is given although along the way you know there are moments where it looks like intellectual property rights will be granted only if a lecturer writes down the notes to the lecture that he's giving and it's a very funny um funny turn but but lectures turn out to be a funny kind of thing for intellectual property um, so that's kind of fascinating but then what ends up happening very quickly is that it becomes clear i think to these these men who are running the private schools in london that this is something that they're not going to be able to to sort of turn back the tide on they can't stop it and so they end up trying to use these medical weeklies as a way of helping to gain audience, as a way of making a name for themselves. Um, and they do it by often agreeing to help with the publication of their lectures, to oversee the notes and the publishing, to make sure that things are accurate, et cetera. Uh, but you do see that, that people line up uh, with particular weeklies in terms of political position. And they tend to publish their works more in one weeklies than another. So you have the Lancet, which is much more radical. You have the London Medical Gazette, which is much more conservative. They're both pumping out you know, every week a volume full of lecture notes. Um, and and you know, one they're all they'll often be in dialogue with each other too. So, you know, one week one will publish the lectures of Charles Bell on the nervous system, and the other one might have a letter to the editor about those lectures that were published in the other journal, um, sometimes contesting claims that were made in them. But so you can kind of see uh, an evolving community. In these two sets of of weeklies, and then there are also monthlies, uh, but you can also just see a a plethora of print publications that are being filled by the contents of the classrooms, and sometimes, as I say, with uh, with more willingness on the part of the lecturer than... Than in other cases, and then it becomes even more complicated when people start writing up hospital cases, because then you also have the rights of a patient who's being written about, and you have questions of whether um, you know people have committed uh, errors in in you know operations that then get written about in the weekly. So it becomes a really contentious and really interesting sort of domain. Um, All the more so because early 19th century men were not afraid to insult each other in print. And so uh, some of it is, is just written in really entertaining fashion. Thank you. So as we
0: move into the next chapter, we move into the nineteen, or the, rather the eighteen twenties and the eighteen thirties with Bell. Now this is the, um, or this is a context in which the institutional settings of medicine are really changing in London, um, and part of that change involves the founding of new universities. And new hospital schools and you take us into two major examples that really um, show um, some of the variety of what's happening in these places one of the places you take us into is london university this was founded in 1826 and it opened for classes in 1828 and bell was among the 24 founding members of the faculty Now, even though Bell is one of the um, members of the faculty, right, one of the founding members of the faculty, um, and we've already talked about him as a kind of conservative reformer, London University, as you tell us, becomes ultimately the home to radical reformers. So in order to understand um, how to understand London University as an example or a marker of these changes in the institutional settings of London and what's important, right, about those changes, can you tell us a little bit? about London University. What do we need to understand about this particular site or this setting in order to understand some of the most important consequences of the institutional changes that were happening in London in this time?
1: London University is a really interesting site. I think actually it's a very good example of how muddy things were, how how difficult it would be in fact, to draw hard and fast lines around either institutions or people saying that they're firmly within one political community or another. Um, London University starts out as a project of people like Henry Brougham who are interested in um, in sort of bringing scientific training to uh to the non-Oxbridge types, to the lower classes, and they want a practical school of learning in London, which doesn't have a university, uh, as a a place for training not just doctors, but also people who are pursuing other kinds of practical and what we might think of as sort of middle-class careers. So it begins as something that, um, that looks, you know, it looks like a project of an Edinburgh wig. Um, and it looks fairly conservative in that sense, um, sort of benevolent, uh, you know, sort of training of the lower classes by the upper classes kind of thing. Uh, and yet that, that gets upended really quickly, at least within medicine. So um, in part, because uh, it turns out that when you sort of bring in these people who are who are supposed to be the audience for London University, um, they help to shape the place, and in part because uh, some of the early choices about who to involve in professorships ended up ended up resulting in uh, the university changing shape fairly quickly. So. Uh, Early on, a number of the faculty members quit. Uh, Bell was among them. He he quit in part because uh, he had been named professor of something he didn't much like, which was physiology. It was a French science. Uh, it wasn't the sort of traditional British anatomy that he believed in. Um, and in part because... At, at least in his declaration to his students about why he quit, in part because London University did not have an attachment to a hospital. Um, so it had sort of abstracted medical science out of clinical practice, away from the clinic and into a university setting. Again, this this looks sort of French uh, to someone like Bell. Um, and in fact, there were some Francophiles on the uh on the faculty during those years. Um, and so hmm. Bell quits and he sort of washes his hands of it. Um, and London University very quickly and and almost accidentally becomes a home to radical science. It just it just takes a different shape from that that which some of the founders envisioned for it. Uh, and at the same time, and maybe you know this is partly why London University goes in the direction that, that it does, you have hospital schools that are building out an almost university-like curriculum attached to the hospitals that become the home of the conservative reformers. So um, as those become an open option to people like Bell uh, who are able to convince charitable boards that there need to be classrooms attached to the hospital. You see this exodus from places like London University into the hospital schools. And again, almost like with the journals, you see people kind of loosely cohering around institutions that seem to fit their political, uh, sort of loose political affiliations. Um, the radicals being a much tighter network than the conservative reformers.
0: Great. And along the lines of um, what you were talking about just now, the chapter um, talks a lot about, and this is something we won't have time to talk about in any detail, but just again to mark for listeners, it talks about Middlesex Hospital School, um, which is developed to offer a kind of um, what you call a comprehensive and practical alternative to London University. So, So there's a lot there to talk about, but we haven't even gotten to the priority dispute So let's get to the priorities (laughs) (laughs) of chapter five. um, Chapter five traces the story into a priority dispute between Charles Bell and Francois um, Magendie, Yeah. How do you put it? Yeah, I'm going to. Excellent. Excellent. Now, this dispute, um, this is something that you've already alluded to way at the beginning of our conversation. And it's a dispute that, as you say here um, in this chapter, made Bell famous in his own time, so let's actually just kind of open this up. What was the nature of Bell's like, great discovery about the workings of nerves and brains, and what was the nature of the dispute that resulted from that?
1: So, in its most simple form, um, Bell's discovery was the discovery of separate roots of uh, motor and sensory nerves. Uh, it it actually never was presented in quite such a simple form, Um, but that's sort of at its core, what it was about. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, Bell, when he came to London was really interested in looking at the nerves in the brain. It was something that, uh, that had been a a focus and uh, kind of an obsession of, of the Edinburgh uh, school that he comes out of. So he brings that interest with him to London. Uh, And and when he sets about to make order out of this confused system of nerves, um, what he what he ends up looking at is a kind of circulatory system of the nerves whereby uh, instead of seeing nervous impulses as going out and back on the same channels in all directions, uh, he wants to look at it as being something like uh, arteries and veins where you have them, you know, sort of one channel for nervous impulses to travel from the brain to the periphery in order to uh, allow, say your hands to act. Uh, and then another channel for sensory impulses to travel from the exterior back to the brain. Um, and so he establishes, he thinks fairly conclusively through dissections that this is how the nervous system works. And after he does that, uh He proceeds to do some experiments that he finds unsavory. Um, He does them only as sort of a a proof that what he thought he'd discovered by dissection actually worked. Uh, And he cut the nerves of an ass, a donkey, as a way of, of confirming for himself that what he thought he'd found through careful anatomy was actually true. And this is the subject of that early book from the first chapter, New Idea, The Anatomy of the Brain. Um, he circulates that work, which doesn't even really count as a book. It's just sort of a, a privately printed manuscript. He prints off 100 copies and he circulates it to his friends, to um philosophers and possible patrons up in Edinburgh um, to natural philosophers whom he hopes to impress. And he asks everyone for feedback. And he's very disappointed that he doesn't get much feedback. Uh, now, fast forward uh, over a dozen years, almost 20 years, um, and we get uh, we get Francois Magandi, who's this emerging philo- uh, physiologist in Paris, uh, who's who's proclaims himself to be interested in Bell and Bell's work, um, and so Bell sends his assistant and his nephew, his assistant who is his nephew, uh, to Paris to show Mahjandi the experiment on the ass where he cut one nerve and then cut the other and, and saw what happened, uh, and so he, uh, his his assistant, his nephew John Shaw shows shows this experiment to Mahjandi and majandi goes back and uh, in later publications says um, he's decided that the experiment is, is on to something that this is a really interesting question but that Bell didn't in to his mind quite get it right um, so Mahjandi repeats the experiment he chooses a different animal on which to repeat it, he chooses uh, he, as he describes it, he was lucky. Someone just happened to bring him a litter of puppies, and the puppies have malleable oh. spinal. I know it's awful. Oh. Um, have malleable spinal cords, and so with careful surgical technique, you can actually cut through the the cord and expose the nerves contained within it, and then you can cut the nerves and. Uh, first one side and then the other and see what happens. Um, so he does this by some accounts on thousands of, of animals and determines experimentally um, what he regards as facts. And this becomes the seed of, uh, of a dispute between the two of them. So what you have is sort of two competing systems of science. You have Bell uh, who is an anatomist and who's a philosopher, uh, who's creating a system uh, through anatomical dissections and extrapolations from those dissections. You have an experimental physiologist in Mahjandi who's creating facts rather than philosophical systems uh, out of repeated experiment on an experimental organism. Uh, and these two systems of science come back Head to head, um, in what became a very vitriolic dispute, uh, and other things get folded in too that that emerge in earlier chapters in the book. So things like publication. Uh, so Majandi, for example, accuses Bell of not having made his work public, and Bell says, "But I did make it public. I I publicized it through the classroom. I printed off." You know this manuscript and sent it to the eminent men of science, and then Mahjandi says no. You know, it, real publication is journal publication. Mm. Never mind that Mahjandi's publications were in his his own self printed journal, but nonetheless, it it was a journal form. So what you see is is a kind of change in um, in how science worked. I think uh, between. Bell's time and Mahjandi's time, it's a short period of time, actually, only about 20 years. But uh, but the two men have completely different systems of, of values and understandings about how the scientific endeavor is supposed to be pursued.
0: Mm-hmm. And actually, that's a really interesting um, kind of a problem to bring up now. I think right now as well, many academics... Are working and living, and many writers, like let alone um, academics, just people who are writing things and doing research, which is not limited, right, to just people working in academia. Importantly, um, there are lots of conversations now over what constitutes publication, right? If you put something on your blog, does that count as kind of as publishing it? Um,
1: That's absolutely right. Yeah.
0: And so these are. um, This is a really interesting case and a really interesting example that I think um, can inform some conversations we're having uh, right now. Now. um So that's so thank you for that.
1: Yeah, I think it, it's really fun the way that you can see these things um, mm-hmm. sort of circle around. Certainly the problems of what counts as publication are not new. Right.
0: So there's lots of other stuff that's happening in this chapter um, that we won't have time to really get into, but again, I just want to kind of mention it to get it out there so listeners know that it's there. A lot of this um, debate and this priority dispute is happening, um, speaking of the puppies, right? This <laughs> is puppies, yeah. puppies. It's happening around um, controversies in Britain over vivisection. Um, so there's a really interesting thread through this story um, that intersects with a history of vivisection, anti-vivisectionists, um, and conversations around that. There's also a really interesting discussion 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 here um, of the kind of betrayal that Bell felt in the midst of this by one of his own students, um, Herbert Mayo. Um, And you talk about here in the chapter the way that this dispute between Bell and Mayo involved the facial nerves. So for listeners who are interested in Bell's work on the facial nerves, and um, again, we we mentioned Bell's palsy at the very beginning, right? There's a lot in here um, that speaks to that. And then finally, following the dispute in this chapter becomes a way also of following and understanding really important transformations in the medical science of Bell's lifetime. Um, So you talk about um, something that we might broadly Uh, categorize as a transformation from anatomy to physiology, right, from anatomists to physiologists. And there's a lot of material in there um, for listeners who are interested in broadly situating this within larger transformations of time. So, Karin, um there's so much, right? I mean, there's so much that we didn't have a chance to talk about. And, of course, we can't be um, comprehensive in this medium, but there's a lot more in the book that listeners will find when they get their hands on a copy and um, work through the pages. Given that, though, is there anything in particular that we didn't talk about but that you'd
1: like to mention for listeners? Um, well, I think I, one of the things that I would say is that uh, – that it's worth looking at, at uh, going back to the, the question of visualization and of systems of display. Um, Chicago was very good about giving me a number of illustrations to work with. Um, they're only a small sampling of what's available. The cover gives uh, gives you know just one example of that, but uh, Bell's illustrations are are really worth taking some time to look at because they're. They're beautiful. Um, if people think that's a funny way of describing anatomical illustrations, but they are actually quite beautiful, uh, and and they tell you, I think, a great deal about um, about an attempt to create a kind of dignity in something that had been that had been scandalous actually for a long time. So, um, so the people who are depicted, the anatomized cadavers are are in fact quite allowed a kind of human dignity and and a kind of beauty in the illustration so um i would i would love for people to linger over those pictures and even to go and look up more of them uh the welcome has a really lovely collection online and i know that there have been um a few collections of bells uh in particular his watercolors um from some of the battles uh, that have been displayed in London recently. So, um, I think if I were, if I were to advise people on a kind of follow up, um, that would be worth looking at.
0: Great. And a number of the um, images that you allude to in the book are rendered in um, the form of plates, these really beautiful plates, in addition to illustrations that are nestled in the uh, in the actual text. So, yeah, and it's really a, kind of an amazing part of the book. So, Karin, now that the book is out, um, what are you currently working on? What are you inspired by and um, what's up now?
1: It's a good question. I I actually think this is probably one of the harder times in a scholar's life, trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to pick up right after uh, one's first big project ends. I've sort of lived with Bell for for a long time. Um, I'm working on, right now I'm working on, on an edited volume with Bernie Lightman on 19th century science museums uh, that I'm really excited about. Um, and in that one, I... I'm a co-editor, but I also have a a piece on a Philadelphia naturalist named Joseph Leidy um, in which I talk about a sort of cooperative economy uh, among naturalists in the U.S. during that period. Uh, It's a sort of one-off piece, but it was a really interesting opportunity to switch time and place, Uh, although, again, somebody who depended on specimens and illustrations. So there are kind of continuities with the work on Bell. Um, I'm toying with a little something on the intellectual property uh, and lectures piece. I, I gave a talk on that and I'm sort of trying to figure out whether I want that to be an article or not. Then my my next big project um, I tend to refer to with you know, sort of quotes around it because it it doesn't exist yet. Um, But in my imagination, it's a book about the centrality of medicine to the sciences uh, in the pre-20th century period. I think uh, people have kind of gotten the question wrong when they ask when and how medicine became scientific in the 20th century, because it seems to me that actually science was very much dependent on medicine in the period that led up to that. So um, that sounds like an unmanageably large project to me at the moment, just sort of coming off the book. But it is, I think, where my attentions will turn once I've worked through these sort of smaller pieces.
0: Well, best of luck with all of that work. And thanks for taking time out of that work to talk with me today. It's really been a pleasure. Um, Congratulations on the book. And thank you so
1: much, Karen. Oh, thank you, Carla. I really appreciate uh, all of your your help in, in talking through this and, um, and all of your thoughts on the book. It's, it's wonderful to get a chance to chat with you. You've been
0: listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.